You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Kookaburra, it's just so beautiful. It's a good, good looking bird. I'll start with its head. What can they teach us? Was habitat loss, fragmentation, and degradation. That is the number one threat to, to most of the animals and plant life in Australia. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Is there anything more iconic than that call from a kookaburra? No. In fact, that's all I have for the podcast today. (laughs) Okay, we're done. (laughs) Say no more. It's already been said. The kookaburra said it all. Loud, long, confident, beautiful, Mm. echoing. That's it. That's all she wrote. (laughs) Uh, we're going back down under near me, back to Australia, back to back weeks. We did Dingo last week, which was very well received. And then today we're going to focus on the Laughing Kookaburra, which I've actually seen one in the wild years and years ago when I was in Queensland. But they are just, when you think of birds in Australia, that is one of the first ones many people think of. Oh, so iconic. The vocalizations, which we opened with, from just even their appearance and their behavior, that we're going to have a lot of fun talking about their courtship behaviors and their chick rearing behaviors. Uh, so, lots of fun facts today. And I, I'm very blessed because we have them at my husband's zoo, the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. And so, my boys and I, on a weekly or monthly basis, walk by Foster and his friends and, of course, sing him the Kookaburra song which we all grew up with here, even in the U.S., being familiar with. And yes, if you stick around towards the end of the podcast, I will sing it for you. (laughs) I'll do my my best attempt. (laughs) The kookaburra is a beautiful bird with a rich history and culture, pop culture. Just, yes, it's going to be a lot of fun today. They are. They are. They're, they're again, one of, one of the iconic animals from Australia. So always fun going to that continent and, and all the diversity in, in wildlife and birds. This past weekend, I was down with the boys, Sanctuary Mountain, Mangatoturi. So we were out bird watching, you know, counting birds. I, I gave them a dollar for every bird, new species. So they give they, you, yeah. yeah. You sent me the you sent me the picture uh, with them with their binoculars, and it just made my heart smile. I was like, oh, I love that. I know, I know, I know. It was fun. It was fun. So we we did see a number of species, and 
As you're going to find out with the, the kookaburra, it's a, a dollar, fisher. though. Wait a minute. A dollar? Wow. Well, New Man, Zealand good dollar. good for you. <laughs> still. Still. We, we joke. A U.S. dollar is like 10,000 New Zealand dollars. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think in reality, it's like a, it's one and a half uh, New Zealand to one U.S. But, you know, it's just, um, you know, I told him not for every bird, for every species we saw. Okay. New species. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Perfect. yeah. We counted like 30 or 40 birds. There's no way. But, you know, as far as <laughs> species, new species. And I They're be- going to be like, Dad, Dad, I want to go birding again. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, and I was using eBird, which again is, is I guess, conservation tip of the week early. So I use the Merlin bird ID and eBird. And I go out now, thanks to Jesse here in New Zealand. And I'll spot a bird. I'll, I'll go in there and put all the characteristics. And it comes, in, comes out and spits it out. Uh, that's my bird. And then it logs and, and you can do it. And it's just something fun to do. You know, we were in lockdown with COVID and all that stuff. So if you're not using that app, get it. It's free around the world. It's fun to use. And it's fun to teach your kids too. Oh yeah. I've, I have a download and I've used it before, but I need to start using it with the boys. Yeah. It's just a fun educational tool. I was just like, you know, we, we've been in lockdown, so we're going to get out. We're going to go you know, trek around and look at birds and, you know, use the app and, and identify it. And they were having fun. So, uh, and then the, the other fun thing is it does have bird calls in there. So one of the things I like to do is, especially the New Zealand fantail is play their call. The next thing I know, I had three of them like above the branches, like dancing around going, who are you? You know, so <laughs> love it. Always fun to use. Yeah. Always fun to use. Uh, before we get going again, thank you to our Patreon supporters. It just means the world to us. You know, for one cup of coffee a month, you support us, you support conservation, our message. It's getting out. Our, again, we're, we're growing. Again, we, we've had some spurts in, in growth. So thank you for that in our listenership. But the Patreon's helping out a lot with that. So thank you so much. Yes. And I want to give a big shout out to our Australian listeners today. And I was just talking with Chris that, uh, we do pretty well in Australia, but I think we can do even better. So if you're listening and you know a friend from Australia that you want to share this episode with, uh, this one or uh, last week we covered the dingo or really any episodes, that would be awesome. I would love, love, love to grow our listenership down under. Yeah, definitely. You know, Lee, who's always active on our message boards and Chantel and Dave and all the others across the ditch from me that that have reached out to us. Thank you so much. We love your country, and I will be over there soon, as soon as I can get over there. And then just a quick shout out to Colin One, who left us a five-star glowing review on iTunes. So thank you to Colin One for uh, leaving us uh, a very, very nice note and uh, Apple iTunes. And if anybody listening could do the same, we'd really appreciate to get our comments up here in the month of September. It uh, is really useful to getting our podcast recirculated. So thank you for that. And uh, just on a personal note, I want to dedicate this episode to my boys. Uh, they love singing the Kookaburro song with me, but then also to our beloved 18-year-old cat, Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix, I remember you always always buttering up to me. And uh, thanks for, for being there for, the, for all three boys now. You know, they've been yeah, she all definitely them. helped yeah. raise all three boys. That's for sure. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. long, gray hair, domestic. Love her. I know. She was beautiful. Beautiful cat. All right. So let's describe this bird, this kookaburra. Oh, the kookaburra. It's just so beautiful. It's a good, good looking bird. 
I'll start with its head. It does have a larger head. Uh, some describe it as square shape, but I think it's just a little bit more robust and a little bit larger than we might think of some other of the more delicate birds out there. Uh, and its head and body and belly area, they're like white or cream color. But near the head, just below the eye, there's these dark brown, chocolate brown cheek patches on its face. And then it also has like a brown eye stripe. And down the middle of their forehead, there's like a subtle brown feathering that almost looks like a, a mohawk, but in, in dark brown. Just beautiful. And they're overall their body, their wings are dark brown. And then they have these sky or light blue patches on their shoulders. So just beautiful. Their tail is also dark brown, reddish orange, uh, and it has bars or bands on it and then white tips on the feathers. But what I think sets the laughing kookaburro and other kingfishers in general apart is their beak. So the beak is long, but also thick and heavy. It's about four inches and it's black on top and ivory or whitish color on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Which is unique. I don't know if we've done a um, done a bird species where the top part of the beak or the bill is a different color than the bottom. Yeah, the only shoe bill was like the only one that was kind of unique that you know was was different. But yeah, they're they're very charismatic looking. I mean, they're very beautiful. Yeah, I love the the white with the brown high points like near the eyes, and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. Um, and then the feathering, and then those yeah, just 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 a little just a little dab, a little sparkle of blue on the feathers is just. It, it always reminds me of scales on a fish. You know how they shimmer? You know, they that do. blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you catch them in the right light. Yeah. Because at first I'm like, is that really blue? Is it? And it yeah, just yeah, depends. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It depends on the light. So just, just a really good looking, solid, hardy bird in my opinion. Right. It is. It is a beautiful bird. They're not big though. They're, you know, height up to 16 inches. You know, so just just over a foot, uh, almost a foot and a half. They only weigh about 16 ounces or 460 grams. Wingspan only of about two feet. So, I mean, they're not tiny. They're not a songbird, but they're definitely not in a raptor category or anything like that. So, you know, they're, they're it's like a little short, squatty bird. That's what, what I always think of when I see them. Yeah, definitely. Now, we're doing the laughing kookaburro and... and Angie said kingfishers, so they are part of the kingfisher family, and we'll talk a little bit about that in evolution. Now, the laughing kookaburra is native to East Australia. So again, this is Queensland, New South Wales, that portion of Australia. They have been introduced into West Australia, the southern tip, Tasmania, and New Zealand. I was so happy when I saw New Zealand. I was like, oh, have you seen one in New Zealand? So I did see a sacred kingfisher the other week. I was out doing my bird count using eBird and and the the Merlin bird ID, you know, because I was like, oh, there's a kingfisher. And it was up on the tree and I was walking along the river and then it flew off and it was beautiful, beautiful blue and green. And... The kookaburro or the laughing kookaburros that are in New Zealand is north of me. They were introduced on an island up there. Okay. They have been spotted like north of Auckland and then down near me it, like 20 years ago, one was spotted. So I, I believe Jesse has seen one. I will talk to him next time I see him because his bird list is he's 
counted a thousand different species in, in New Zealand. I'm, I'm on like species 27 or something. So. <laughs> hey, you got to start somewhere. I yes. know. I know. I see all the house sparrows. And again, what, in, what's that like $27 worth? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, I mean, I have tons of house sparrows that are, that are invasive introduced species outside my, my window, but uh, you know, it's these native birds are, are really the big ones, but they have been introduced here too. But most of the other kookaburros, the other the other species are Australia or Papua New Guinea. So right, I didn't realize yeah. that they went that far north. Right. So yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. Now the kookaburro, it, why care about this bird? It's it's not endangered, and we'll talk about that. But which is awesome. That's I know. Great news. It's we got we got to celebrate when we can. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a good it's it's good news for them. It's a good story. Yeah, I mean for a up, change. Up, up to 65 million, you know, which I don't know if there's that, quite that many in Australia, but but quite a lot of them there. I read only 500 in New Zealand, though. So that's yes, pretty yes, low. yes, yes. Yeah. But they don't belong here. So we, don't, <laughs> we really don't want them here. I think you're beautiful birds, but, but go back over the ditch where you belong. But the kookaburro, not only, I mean, it does have its ecological niche, which we'll talk about. Very important culture for like the Aborigines. I mean, tons of legends about kookaburros. You know, with their with their calls and oh yeah, know. yeah, Chris. I was um, the kookaburras are known as the Bushman's alarm clock. Yeah, yeah, in the morning. <laughs> you mm-hmm. It's so loud. Go back to the beginning so of this loud. podcast. It is so loud. But you know, you're gonna find out they do kill snakes. So you know, people like them around. It's the very rich culture that still goes on and celebrated today in Australia, right? Oh, yeah. From a pop culture's perspective or a little bit more modern. I mean, people love kookaburros. Uh, they, their sound is just um, incredible for bird watchers. Uh, but they're actually a common sight in urban and suburban areas. Uh, and so even in a built-up city, you might have a kookaburra land on your balcony and perform its song. Or I found a YouTube video where I'll play here in a, later on where they're they're uh, singing a duet on somebody's balcony. Oh, wow. uh, so it's just, just really cool stuff. And uh, people sometimes will actually hand feed them uh, raw pieces of meat. Probably not the best idea for several reasons to feed wildlife because they might become dependent on it or it might make it more food aggressive or more willing to approach humans. But that's just an example of how, how much they're typically loved by Australians. And from a pop culture perspective too, and I found some fun facts that their calls were used at the beginning of the Tarzan series in the 1930s. But more recently, and very close to my home, because we are extremely into Jurassic World here, mm-hmm, or Jurassic mm-hmm. Park. Uh, and the boys are a little young to watch the main movies, but they have a lot of like kid cartoons right. now, like Camp Cretaceous, and I could go on and on. In fact, both the boys are going to be the Velociraptor Blue for how for how. Oh yeah, awesome, <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. At any rate, the kookaburra was uh, played in some of the jungle scenes from the Lost Jurassic World, Jurassic Park, in 1997. So they're just a very exotic sounding right, uh, right. bird, right? Uh, and right. they they uh, and then with the impressive call, so. Once you hear it, you can't unhear it, and uh, and I'm always so excited. And I try to not 
bother animals when I go to a zoo. I want them to do their natural behaviors. But whenever we go past the laughing kookaburra, I'm always trying to like get him to sing his song. Like, come on, buddy. <laughs> and sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. So, Well, I was out in the wild using th- that app and you can uh, play some of the calls and see if they'll call you back. So definitely. Yes, I'll, I'll have to try that. I didn't think about that. I'll have to try that next time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It do- does work. Je- that's how Jesse got, uh, I think it was, I forgot which kiwi it was the, the the little brown or something he was using a kiwi but i don't ball. know if i should do that like in the zoo setting i'm trying to i know to, yeah i'll have to ask uh, my husband he's mr rules mcgee so he'll let me know if hey, he let me do research back in the day where my kids were oh yeah the students yeah, definitely students were playing definitely. music and see how the animals responded so. <laughs> yeah yeah, as yeah. long as it's not too loud. I think it's need to be quiet so you don't disturb yeah, yeah, the yeah. other animals. Yeah. yeah, that's true too. That's true too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Always worried about animal welfare, as you should be. Now, Angie, last week, you know, obviously Australia is in focus. We had good news for Australia. Again, this is a good species. This is a species with a good story that's doing well. You know, some good stuff there, but... This week, I just want to give a a blunt assessment of Australia's wildlife and their future because a very good article just came out. This paper was just published out of the University of Queensland this this past month. And the study's authors did a great job in their assessment, and and they really want to highlight that it's important to understand the threats to Australia's biodiversity so they can come up with better management plans and strategies. And so the article's titled, A National Scale Data Set for Threats Impacting Australia's Imperiled Flora and Fauna. And it, it was in Ecology and Evolution, just published August of 2021, uh, the authors Ward and others. So it, it was a very interesting read. I, I really enjoyed reading it because it, it was a very frank assessment. Now, anybody listening to this podcast, you know, your, your heads probably hasn't been in the sand. You understand we are going through this mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction globally. You know, right now, recent estimates are there are at least a million species threatened with extinction that could go extinct in the next hundred years with right now predicting over 500 plus terrestrial vertebrates are likely to be lost within the next 20 years. So our extinction rate is 100 to 1,000 times normal. All right. So the authors open up with, and and I just want to read it, and it it says, Australia is in the midst of an extinction crisis, having already lost 10% of terrestrial mammal fauna since Europeans settled Australia, and hundreds of others at high risk of extinction. So what this paper did, or what these authors, scientists did, is they looked at the 1,795 terrestrial and aquatic taxa that are listed as threatened. So these are your critically endangered, endangered, vulnerable, under Australia's Commonwealth laws. And then they looked at all the threats, and and they, they measured each class of animal and all the threats that are experiencing in Australia. Now, the history of Australia, you know, since the late 18th century, around 1780s, the Europeans started settling Australia. They really had a drastic effect on the environment. You know, they introduced 
invasive species, cats, cane toads, uh, different plants that that have now become invasive there. They went and cleared out native vegetation for intense ag and urban development. Then you had sheep and cattle and other livestock grazing. We brought diseases. We altered the fires. It had a very dramatic effect on the environment. And we see that in New Zealand. I walk around New Zealand today where I live in the Shire, you know, Lord of the Rings, the Shire, that should all be wooded. It shouldn't be all clear grasslands. It's, it's beautiful. The hills are beautiful. It is so beautiful. But when I go to the sanctuary and I walk around this place and I'm like, this is how most of the North Island of New Zealand should look. Not the Shire. It shouldn't be the Shire. It should be the deep woods. So obviously humans have had a major impact. So this study looked at the threats and they used the IUCN threat impact scoring system. So the, the eight threats that they were looking at against each of these species was the effect of adverse fires, which we just saw uh, late 2019, early 2020, massive fires in Australia. Changing surface or groundwater, climate change or severe weather, uh, disrupted ecosystem and population processes. So I was thinking last week with the dingo fence you talked about mm-hmm. and the effects on how that affects all these animals and their, their ability to migrate and move. Habitat loss, fragmentation, degradation, invasive species and disease, overexploitation and pollution. Now, looking at all of these threatened taxa, this was very interesting, I thought. Of the 1,795, 1,339 are plants. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So, again, when Angie and I talk food webs, plants are very critical. They're very important. That's food for insects and and microbes and things in the soil, plus our terrestrial animals and birds, you know, birds, mammals, all of that. So plants made up almost 75% of threatened taxa in Australia, which I thought was quite interesting. Birds came in at number two, 135. Mammals, number three at 107. Invertebrates, so your insects, things like that, 65. Reptiles, 61. Fish, 51. And frogs, 37. So most of them were plants. So very, very interesting. So looking at the eight, those eight categories, the big one for, I think, all the species, the big bar was habitat loss, fragmentation, and degradation. That is the number one threat to to most of the animals and plant life in Australia. So urban development, clear cutting of the, the, the forests and the tropical rainforests, that is where you are losing your, your species in Australia. That's the number one threat across taxa. You know, maybe mammals, not as much as say some of the others ones, but for, for plants, that's, that's the big one. The number two threat was invasive species and disease. So for all of our Australian listeners, you understand this you know, you have rabbits and and all these other invasive species that are competing with your native wildlife that are pushing a lot of these wildlife to extinction. The only other big one that sticks out for me, Angie, 
was climate change and severe weather was having a big impact on amphibians, which we know, yes, and birds. Birds. Ah. Birds was the other one. So very interesting. And I'll, and I'll put this graph on the show notes because it, it, it's a beautiful graph that they have in there. And you can just kind of see and, and break down those eight threats. So, you know, overall, the the authors said, you know, it's a very convoluted study. I can't cover it all. I'll even link the study in the show notes, too. So if you want to read it, they're showing the, the, the different threats affecting their endangered species. They quote, I quote them, they said, since 2000, 85% of Australia's threatened species have lost habitat, equating to 7.7 million hectares. So, and, and it, it's not slowing that's down. A, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they just hope that the, the data will provide the government and policymakers with more critical information to make better decisions to help these threatened species. Now, a lot of it's political there in Australia. I, I, I read about oh, some I of can, it. I can yeah. feel that. <laughs> Over here in the U.S. Yes, I know. Holy I know. I macaroni. know. But, but for our listeners, you know, this would be a good study if, if you're in Australia, a good study to, to to read and reference. And, you know, when you talk to uh, other people and say, hey, these, these are, you have some of the most unique animals on earth and God, we want you to save them. You know, it's, it's, you just, it's such a beautiful country and, and beautiful animals like the kookaburra. And we want them to be around for generations to come. So hopefully that helps in a little bit of a wake-up call. But that's just a blanket assessment of what's going on over there. Well, Chris, I really appreciate that updated look. Like you said, that paper just came out. And so and so that's our goal on the podcast is to help bring some of the current science about conservation wildlife to all of our listeners. And then we all come together to try to help help save these creatures, right? They, they need our help. And so, and quite clearly that that's the case in Australia, just like it is in most of the developed and underdeveloped world. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a really interesting read and, you know, I appreciate all the work that went into that assessment with all those authors. So thank you for that. Well, I think that's the other thing too, to appreciate about some of these uh, scientific articles is, how many authors contributed, how long it took to gather that data, and how they're all working together to pro- provide the most up-to-date, unbiased science out there. And then, But that paper, even with all those authors and all those brilliant minds working tirelessly to bring all the facts, put them all together, and look at all the data, uh, it's still peer-reviewed yeah. by several yeah. independent people that are not related or have any any type of interest in in, in the authors uh, are publishing the paper. So, so just a quick insight into our listeners. It is a nightmare to get a scientific paper published. It is hard. Oh, I've had very little luck at it. Yeah, it's a nightmare. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it's tough. I it's always have to I try to recruit like other people that are a little bit more well-seasoned than myself to act as my mentors. And so, yeah, yeah. no, no, it's, it yeah. is not easy. It is not easy. No, it, it isn't. And, you know, all those which authors. Good. Which is yeah, good. Yeah, it is. That's what it should be. I mean, things still be. can slip through the cracks and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. uh, nothing nothing in science is 100%. Nothing in life is 100%, right? No. So, no. Uh, 
but yeah, it's definitely that's a different pod for a different day. <laughs> yeah, but it takes it takes it takes many months, if not years, to get articles published in, in reputable scientific journals. It it takes months to circulate an article amongst all the authors to get all their feedback, make all their changes. Then you submit submit it for peer review. The peer review, my heart always drops. I'm like, okay, goodness, you know, it. it you just want to see that accept with changes. Your article will never get accepted without change. It, I, I, it never happened to me of the, Oh gosh, no. Yeah. The 60, 80, almost a hundred scientific articles, abstracts, anything we've put in, they always come back with suggested changes, but very hard questions to answer or methods. They, they challenge you on every step of the way. So that's how science is. It, It is not easy. It's not for the faint-hearted. No, no, and it, it and that's why, I guess, as scientists, we get frustrated when people distrust science because we understand the process, and it is, it is not easy. It is, it's not only do we spend what how many eleven? I spent eleven years in college, Angie. I think you were near that with two babies. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you know, with your undergrad, your your master's degree, your PhD. You were trained very well by some of the world's leading experts, and and then you you go forth and start your own lab, or you get your you know get your own career going. It, it's a it's a very very robust system in place. So you know I would always say please trust science. And in this podcast, I'll, I'll get off this soapbox in here in a second. In this podcast. You know, Angie and I always talk about how there's so much debate in science. We're always constantly debating. I always told my students, one study doesn't make a truth. But when there's two, three, four, five, a dozen, 20, 30, 40 studies confirming what you found, then that becomes more of a truth and an accepted truth. So, you know, I, I hope our listeners out there, you do trust the science you read and shoot us an email if, if, if you know, you're having trouble and, and you want to understand it more, but you know, it, it's what's going on in the world today. It, it is frustrating for us as scientists to see how distrusted we are, I guess, to an extent, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It is very dis- disheartening. And I know that I'm working with my students on the scientific method and kind of going back to ground zero of like, of, learning more about how science is done and uh, how the scientists are doing science and how, what a research project looks like and what a scientific article should look like and what are scientific resources, what they look like, where to get them from. Um, and, and also how to think critically and, and how to, I, I mean, as a scientist, I was trained to question everything yes. and I still do. Uh, but at some point I'm also trained enough to know that there's a ton that I don't know. And I'm going to, I'm going to say, I, I'm not an expert in that area, but if that person even had half the training that I had, and let's say for instance, virology or immunology, if they had half the training that I had with my animal science and zoology and behavior, physiology specialties, animal science, then they're good. <laughs> I'm going to, I'll look at their paper and look at the data and look at the numbers and the studies and the, if there was a meta-analysis and I'll look through all of that. But at the end of the day, it's like other people look through that as well. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I like to, 
read other types of science because I'm a total nerd, but I also know when to kind of stay in my lane as well. And absolutely. Quote unquote, and, leave and, it up. Leave it up to the experts, right? And we're still skeptics. I mean, we are still skeptics. A hundred percent, absolutely, all the time. I think scientists are the world's biggest skeptics. You know, I'm very skeptical of, of research. I don't just trust everything I read. It's I do question it, and I do go, hmm. No, we're okay. trained to, to question, and yeah. and all the talks that we go to and we give that you will be asked hard questions, and that is part of it. And people are actually trying to find holes in your work. That is part of it. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. A little insight into science. <laughs> Sorry we went off on that tangent, but it, <laughs> yeah. I thought with everything going on in the world, it, it was yeah, a good, it good point. Yeah, it hits home for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but what a great paper. So thanks for bringing that in today, yeah. Chris. Yeah. Very good paper. Very good paper. All right. So, you know, evolution, not a ton on the kookaburra. We need to get some uh, people out there digging in the dirt in Australia more. What we do know, classification, obviously birds, so it's aves is the class. The order is coraciforms. So these are colorful colorful birds, the kingfishers, bee eaters, rollers, motmots, and toadies. So 300 species, not too distant from pisciniforms. And we covered one. I will be very shocked if you remember which pissy forms we did. <laughs> Colorful bird. I'll give you a hint. Oh, Think no, of the no. Beak. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to say, um, it's not the spoonbill. Uh, did we do it? Okay. No, not a turn. Okay. I'll oh, take sh- a hint. Charades? <laughs> I don't know if I could do this. Oh, Chris is giving me a charades hint. <laughs> He's so definitely going to be my partner the next time we play charades. I think it was a red-bellied woodpecker. A pileated woodpecker. Close. Oh, we did, pil- oh, we did pileated. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Pileated Close. woodpecker. Yeah, good, good, good. There you go. Closest relatives or closest Can family. Can I see your uh, pileated woodpecker impression <laughs> again? So Just <laughs> That's amazing. You didn't record that, I hope. No, but that needs to uh, go on Instagram. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> my headphones on yeah so the uh the, the closest uh type and of just just so you know chris you wouldn't probably make it very far as a woodpecker because you peck way too slow oh yeah no god no oh, <laughs> yeah. that was a fun bird to cover though how they protected, so fun so yeah fun. how they protected their noggin while they did that i actually gave that fun fact uh to john the other day and he did not know that Ooh. how they have extra cushioning in their brain to yeah. uh basically brace the impact of the um they had like little built-in helmets in their yeah. brain yeah. to help cushion the impact of all the all the blows. The banging. Yeah, yeah, the mm-hmm. banging they do. All right, so the kingfishers is Alcindidae. It's kingfishers, small to medium size. These are bright colored birds, 114 species. This is where I, I saw the sacred kingfisher that's native to New Zealand. The kookaburros is Decello is the genus. So again, native to Australia and Papua New Guinea. And you have the laughing kookaburro, which is in East Australia, you know, we're native. Then you have the blue winged kookaburro, which is North Australia and Southern New Guinea. The spangled kookaburro, which is in New Guinea. And then the rufous bellied kookaburro, which is New Guinea. So, Yeah. Bird evolution, we've covered it. It's still amazing. 160 million years in the making. 
you know, really birds took off after the end of the Cretaceous period with the fifth mass extinction. That's where they took off. The kingfishers, the earliest relative was found in Germany. And they date, yeah, they date about 45 million years ago when they kind of emerged. And they pretty much hypothesized that they evolved in North America. But we know, like, God, we just covered the Amir Falcon. They migrate all over the world. So kingfishers did radiate out from the Northern Hemisphere down into Australia. The closest they're, they're guessing is anywhere from five to 25 million years ago is when a kookaburra relative showed up there, but uh, still don't have that nailed down yet. A little bit more about these birds, they, they, 11 to 15 years I read in the wild, they can live up to 20 years under human care. So not too bad for a bird. You know, I know we've got some birds that live much, much longer, but some birds that live much shorter lives. Not a lot on physiology. The one thing I did find interesting, Angie, was they're not very, because I always like to look to see how fast they can fly. And everything that I've read about kookaburros is they can swoop down quick when they're hunting. Yes. I watched one from up high swoop down and grab a worm Yeah, as it's going into a hole. So they can swoop down quick, but generally they don't fly very slow because they just have a lower metabolism than, than a lot of birds. And they, at night, they can actually reduce their body temperature by like nine degrees Celsius to conserve energy. And they have thicker feathers, which, which gives them more body heat insulation, you know, so they Mm -hmm. can protect their body heat. So they, they don't burn a lot of energy, which, you know, when, when you're looking at, I don't know, everybody, when you, when that have not been to Australia, obviously Queensland, the Northern parts of the country are much, much warmer. But when you get down to the lower part of New South Wales or down by Melbourne area, it's cold. You know, it, it, my winters here are, are not warm. You know, it, it's mid 50s Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius roughly uh, today. You know, and, and we do drop down to freezing temperatures. So, you know, these birds aren't, they do not migrate. So they have to survive those winters. Well, Chris, just to jump in a little bit on kookaburras and their flying is a lot of their hunting is just staying and waiting being patient, sitting on a branch, up high, perched, waiting patiently, and then seeing an animal on the ground and then flying down quickly and pouncing on its prey. So it doesn't have to do some of these like long, hard, fast flights like we think of some of the other uh, birds of prey. But in general, kookaburras are exclusively carnivorous, right? So they eat mice, snakes, insects, small reptiles, baby birds of other species. They rarely eat fish, unlike kingfishers, uh, but they can they can take like a goldfish from your pond or things like that. Uh, so they have a very robust diet, and we didn't really mention in ecosystem roles of why I care about uh, kookaburras, except for that they're amazing and their vocalizations are incredible, but 
Chris pointed out that they do eat snakes. So a lot of times that's a friend that you want in your backyard, but they also will eat insects. So when we think of helping control the insect population, kookaburras are great at that. Yeah. And and I found, you know, jump a little bit into behavior, but when they do catch snakes or lizards, they will bash them against the ground with that beak and trying to soften it up so they can get at it. So yeah, Yeah, they swallow their prey whole typically. And so if you're going to swallow something that's whole, it's better if it's more of like a smushy meatball consistency versus a bony critter. Right. Right. So yeah, they'll do some of this bashing to try to, to soften it, which is an interesting behavior, but pretty clever on their part. That is, it is. And, and, they are like little flying dinosaurs. I mean, they they really are. <laughs> They're like pterodactyls, yeah, right? Well, that's where the, where the Jurassic World uh, reference of them using their call is yeah. not not too far off, right? Right. Oh, they are. They are little flying dinosaurs down here in Australia. So, and funny enough, Chris, you kind of led me into their behavior of the flying dinosaurs. Is kookaburras can be somewhat friendly? Like I said, they might take meat from your hands, but it's probably something you don't want to get into uh, if you live around them or near them, just because in general, a lot of wildlife that you feed can become a nuisance or, and it can actually be bad for them. It doesn't provide them the rich amino acids and proteins that they need in a complete diet. And then they become dependent on it. It's kind of like here in the States, we always tell people not to feed ducks bread in the Mm -hmm. pond because it's just not nutrient rich and they will eat it, and then they won't eat the things that they actually need to survive. At any rate, kookaburras, being little tiny flying dinosaurs, they are very territorial, and they will occupy a very well-defined territorial range all year round. And once again, they're typically peaceful birds, but they can be kind of aggressive, especially during breeding season, and they'll often spar with other birds and by sparring they basically grasp each other's beaks and kind of twist and turn just to show their strength and their dominance if other birds that are not in their social structure are entering their territory and then if you're on the losing end of a kookaburra sparring match you are going to be thrown off your perch and off you go Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you don't want to be that bird uh but my husband was telling me stories at the zoo because I was like, oh, do you want to come talk, get on the podcast and talk about kookaburros because you work with them? But he's already in bed for the night because somebody has to (laughs) keep an eye on the baby these days (laughs) uh, at nighttime. But he did tell me that, uh, yes, there is a repeat offender at the zoo that will hit zookeepers that are in training, these poor students that are just learning to be zookeepers. He'll, uh, he or she, I don't know if it's male or female kookaburro, will uh, put his beak into the back of their head. Oh, God. (laughs) Not in a friendly way. No, no. And I was like, ooh, that happened before? He's like, oh, it's happened several times Uh, before. So once again, not not super aggressive, but they could be being territorial. And I asked him, I'm like, do you think it's during breeding season? And he he, he didn't have any data to to correlate it. He just, uh, he just kind of laughed and he said, he, his other advice for me is like, well, if you are going to sing the kookaburra song, make sure you learn the words. That's that's his other (laughs) advice tonight. But as you may have guessed, uh, laughing kookaburros are, they're social, but they have a very complex social structure. 
Uh, they do congregate in groups, typically anywhere from like three to five to 10 even. Uh, and, but it's generally going to be the breeding pair, which we'll talk about when we get to reproduction, and then helpers. And this is a new concept to me. This is the first bird I've heard of the terminology helpers. So helpers are often going to be male and they will assist the parents or the adults with nesting duties and they'll help feed and protect the chicks and they'll help defend the, uh, the breeding pair's territory. And so typically the helpers are going to be the young from the previous mating season. So they've learned a lot about hunting. They've learned a lot about parental care, nest making, uh, protecting their territory, and they assist the parents. And as I re was reading about that, I'm like, man, I need some helpers. Yeah, <laughs> my, yeah, I do. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> I know you do big time. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you so, do too, though. Yeah. wow. I was like, geez, that's like genius. The laughing kookaburra. Who knew? You're, you know. have a genius, a complex social structure that I want to be yeah. a part of. Well, this is a fun one. Chris, do you know what a group of kookaburros is called? Oh, gee. Oh, no. A kookout? <laughs> Close. Uh, is, it, is it? It's a flock or a riot. Okay, okay, okay. And I love the riot because I think they like laugh like they're having like a riot. Right. Like it's so right. fun. So anyways, that's just a fun fact. But let's focus on their famous call, all right? They're named after the fact that they make this distinct laughing sound. And it's generally used to establish and maintain their territory, right? They're those territorial birds. They're going to bop you on the back of the head. If you get, if you're a zookeeper that gets too close mm -hmm, into their territory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and the calls are, are very unique, but they're so loud and long and abrupt that people often can mistake them for other animals, monkeys, donkeys, like you name it. And I know we opened with a call, but basically there's a five-step part to the call. It's going to start with a kua, followed by a cackle, and then a rolling noise, repeated by an oo-oo-oo-oo sound. And then the best is at the very end is going to be followed by the ha-ha-ha-ha, the laughing. And I'll play, a, I'll, I'll play a duet here in a second to kind of re refresh your memory because it's just so beautiful. Now, the reason... The kookaburros can make this incredible, iconic vocalization. Because of their physiology, they have what's known as a tracheobronchial syrinx, which provides two sources or two parts of vibration, and they therefore produce two frequencies at the same time, which results in multiple harmonics. So it's a very, very complex production sound system, which uh, I will not be able to emulate when I sing the no, Kukupura song. No. Uh, but it's just really, really incredible, right? And then they make these calls to t talk about their territory and protect it. But they also do duet calls within their family group. And this coordination of some of these duets going back and forth is just an incredible feat in nature. And it's been studied a lot. Uh, well, duetting in general um, for bird biologists has been studied a lot. And I, I read a whole paper all about why they do it. And just in summary, we don't necessarily know uh, because it is just so incredible. But researchers have hypothesized that by doing this duets together or even uh, having a multiple chorus of multiple birds in the family, 
sing these calls together, it can help basically strengthen their bond. And so it might have evolved to as a basically like a social as a social bonding mechanism. Because if you think about it, for anybody who has sang professionally or even just in the shower or even like me on a podcast, whether you're amazing at it or just average, it it takes it takes some energy, right? You gotta mm-hmm. get your breath and you gotta focus. Mm-hmm. And so why do birds do that? Or more so, why does the kookaburra do such an impressive one. And so really quick, I just want to play a duet of two birds on this balcony in Australia that are just having a heyday. Just be the whole podcast. <laughs> just I'll just play that. I'll and I wasn't even it. done. We'll put the video on our show notes. It is oh just incredible. Can can you hear the two like the, yeah. there's two birds? Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, so that's what's known as a, a laughing kookaburra duet. Oh, it sounds like us probably after a while. People are like, <laughs> what are they saying? I lost it. <laughs> totally, Chris. But yeah, just some just just so beautiful. And and besides that famous call that does mimic a human laugh at several parts. Um, they can make other sounds such as a, a squawk, a chuckle, a, a squawk, a cackle, a koa. So definitely, definitely very, very vocal birds, which is probably why they have their own song for themselves. Uh, and for anybody who, like I said, has any interest in singing, you know that it's not an easy skill. And it's not necessarily an easy skill for young juvenile kookaburras to learn that. I mean, that's just a, that song. I didn't even play the whole song, right? And it's, it's very long. So they do start producing these calls from an early age, but the famous song is a learned behavior. And so the breeding pair, the parents uh, within the group will teach the fledglings to produce the signature laughing call after the juveniles have descended and like left the nest. And the way that it typically goes, the lessons, the adult male kookaburro will sing like a little small section of the song. And then the offspring will mimic that. And they usually don't mimic it the correct way the first time. And that's just like me when I took piano lessons or singing lessons in choir and stuff like that. It takes a while. Uh, but they'll keep going, and over time, the juvenile kookaburros will learn the song, and it's estimated that it can take up to two weeks or so before the fledgling can actually properly sing and join in on these uh, choral songs that they typically sing in the morning, right, the Bushman's Alarm, but then they also sing it a lot at uh, dusk, so they're crepuscular, crepuscular choral songs. So it's, but it's important that the young learn these because while they're staying, if they stay on to be the parents helpers, they will need these calls to help, uh, to help 
establish and protect their territories. So just, just the behavior is just phenomenal. And then know, that's just their vocalization. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. they also do a ton of visual displays that will uh, further basically m- keep their territory um, and also impress their friends. And so one of the, Two of the displays that, I, that, that caught my eye it, were, were different flight patterns. And one is called a trapeze flight that happens during like a, t- a territorial display where one kookaburra will basically head towards another one midair. And then, Chris, there's these visual displays that kookaburras participate in. And just to talk about two of them that really caught my eye are the trapeze and circular flights that they will display. And so the trapeze flight will happen to basically protect their territory. And so two kookaburros from different flocks will, or riots, if you will, will be perched on the branch at the edge of their territory and the other one on the edge of their territory. And they basically like trapeze, like swoop towards the other one back and forth. And then the other one swoops towards and away from its territory basically saying, hey, get out, but they look like trapeze flyers. And uh, they also do this behavior called a circular flight. And that's, once again, very territorial. And they'll fly circles around other kookaburros if they're inhabiting their territory. And they also make calls that sound like laughing or squawking, basically depending on their, the neighbors and how far they're encroach, encroaching out of their territory and how threatened they feel. So just, I mean, talk about a, a bird that is on my list now to see in, in the wild. The wild, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I will see one and take pictures and send it to you. <laughs> I know, please do get some of these videos because uh, I, I couldn't, I didn't find any, um, I didn't find any videos on these aerial displays, but I, 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 but I, yeah, yeah, aerial, yeah, but I have them in my mind, in my mind's eye, and uh, just very, very cool, and very yeah. unique and fun. Yeah, birds are fun. Birds are fun. Now, breeding. There's some interesting stuff in there. A oh, little, they're talk fun. about the the flying dinosaur. A little, 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 little tough, tough life for kookaburras. Oh man, the laughing kookaburro does not disappoint when it comes to uh, reproductive behavior. Uh, they're typically monogamous or sometimes semi-monogamous, uh, and they're going to start pairing up and building their nests with each other in August, and then they'll usually lay eggs any time from September to November. And once again, that's going to shift a little bit depending on how north or south they live. But even though they are mostly monogamous, during mating season, they are still going to exhibit some courtship behaviors. And one of the more prominent laughing kookaburra courtship behaviors is where the female, even though she's an adult and one of the dominant adults in the flock, she will act, posture, and vocalize like a young baby bird. So it's called a begging posture. And then the male will come in and he offers offers her some food. And they will also make vocalizations with ooh-ooh-ooh sounds. And it's just this really interesting display that was until recently only thought to be displayed in the female, this kind of begging 
acting like a baby bird, like, please feed me, please feed me, because I'm so young. But recently, uh, observers have said that they've seen the flip side, where the male will act like a young bird, and the female will offer him his food. So just really unique, interesting behaviors. Uh, and they're monogamous, so they, they, they do this elaborate courtship every year, right? Um, and so I don't know the reason behind it. And all I can say is I definitely don't want John to feed me his smashed up lizard, <laughs> no. meatball lizard, <laughs> no. or snake. No, no but no, he can take a little, 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 little piece of his food and pass over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's always endearing. They're so silly. The kookaburras are going to build their nest pretty high in trees, about 30, 30 feet up, and often found in the mountain gum tree, which is part of the lyrics of the song about the kookaburra sitting on the old gum tree. And after male and female have bred, the female will lay on average three eggs and they're white and she'll lay the eggs one day apart. And both parents and those helpers, those kind of teenage last year's offspring helpers will incubate the eggs. So pretty cool. And the incubation period of the kookaburra is going to be a little shy of a month, about 25 days or so. And of course, when, um, Young laughing kookaburras are hatched. The chicks are blind and they don't have any feathers, but they're pretty big when they're born. Uh, however, their their beaks and their tails are shorter than those of the adults. And they don't have quite as uh, brilliant as of plumage as the adults. So when it comes to parenting the chicks once they've been born, everyone helps. Both parents and the helpers feed the chick, which is just awesome. I mean, we, we've seen some birds before where both male and female feed the chick, but I don't know if we've seen the, this, term, this terminology of the helpers. So I just love the idea that I'm all about like team parenting, co-parenting. My, one of my right. favorite, favorite lines is it takes a village because it really does. Yeah. So the laughing kookaburra has that all figured out, and which is great because the more – the more kookaburras you have feeding the offspring, the more likely they are to survive. But interestingly enough, if there's not adequate food or the helpers are maybe, you know, lazy teenage siblings that aren't pulling their weight or whatever, uh, quite often the, the third egg, so the one that was hatched two or three days later than the other one, will be, it'll be much smaller at any given time. And so... A lot of times the larger, older siblings, if there's not enough food to go around, will attack the younger chick or the, I'm sorry, I should say the smaller chick. And uh, in, in the, um, the young kookaburras have like a little hook on the end of their beak that goes away as they age, but they'll use this hook as a weapon and sometimes they will kill the, the younger sibling. Mm -hmm. But when food's plentiful and they're getting enough enough food, then that doesn't happen. So sounds like my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> Give me that chicken nugget. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh my goodness. Uh, so funny. Uh but 
but they do reach uh, sexual maturity at about one year of age. So they'll probably stick around for a helper for a year or so, and then they'll go off to make their own riot or their own flock. Fun birds. I mean, you know, like so we said, fun, right? Yeah. At the beginning, I mean, least concern, which is good. It's it's, it's always good to cover these species. It, I saw a huge range. It, there was one study that came out that said, oh, maybe sixty-five million, but as few as eight hundred thousand. Okay. Across Australia, so uh, somewhere in the middle. I, I I don't know, but they're doing well. They're doing well, uh, you know. But again, other species, particularly plants is in Australia, not doing so well due to habitat destruction and all those things we talked about. But, you know, I just love Australia. I, I love these birds. Now, being that there isn't any specific kookaburro, Angie, I want to highlight, especially talking about preserving Australia, and that's the Australian Conservation Foundation. And it's one of, you know, Australia's largest environmental organizations. They, they claim to have close to over 700,000 people uh, that work with them. They are working very hard to preserve Australia, their habitat. They're really doing a lot on climate change. You know, particularly, we will get back to the ocean. We can talk more about the, the Great Barrier Reef there see how that's doing. Oh yeah. We should get an expert on. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really working on standing up for nature, solving climate change, helping Australia really with the politics because living down here, keeping my thumb over there kind of on the pulse of Australia and we didn't haven't really addressed it, but the current government and their policymakers are still pushing coal, a lot of fossil fuels. They are one of the industrialized industrialized nations that are are turning their nose up at a lot of these climate change solutions. And the people there want them. They want them, but again, politics is very complex like in any country like we talked about. So I just want to highlight them, give them a big shout out for everything they're doing to bring these issues in Australia up to the populace there so people can get involved and preserve their native wildlife because I cannot wait to get over the ditch, the Tasman Sea, and and check out Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, all South Australia. I want to get over to Perth. You know, I want to go see the Quokka. I want to go down to Kangaroo Island. I want to get to Tasmania and find my devils. And then I'm going to go in the outback and search for that Tasmanian tiger that's out there somewhere. So I love it. Yes. And I want to go with you. <laughs> yes. So big shout out to the Australian Conservation Foundation. You can check them out at acf.org.au and they'd appreciate it. Well, thank you everyone for listening and hopefully you fell in love with the kookaburra as much as we have uh, this past week. And please share this episode with some friends. And we'll end it with Angie and the boys singing the kookaburra song. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Kookaburra sits on the old gum tree. Merry, merry king of the bushes. He laughed. Kookaburra laugh, kookaburra gay, your life must be. Good job, guys.
Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.